We are constantly experiencing the world through our senses, through our sense of sight, hearing, touch, taste, and smell. We make assessments and try to understand our surroundings, but the senses can also be used to create law. The application of the senses is foundational to indigenous law systems and can be used to think beyond a black and white legal system to promote more relational ways of being. You're listening to Play on Words on CFUV 101.9 FM. Broadcasting from the Hu Sanich and Songhees territories at the Sanchothan and Likwangan speaking people, also known as Victoria. On this episode, we speak with indigenous scholars who take us through the relationship between indigenous law and the census. Wanabojo, Wase Asin, Christine C. Indigenous, Bakhtin, and Donjaba, Obishka Kong, and Donjaba, Makwawadodam. My name is Wase Asin, Christine C. I'm from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and Laxul First Nation. My clan is the Bear Clan, and I'm an assistant professor here in Gender Studies at the University of Victoria. I'm going to be reading a poem entitled Cease Ceremony, and cease um, is the word for salmon in Sinchothan, and Sinchothan is the language of the Wasanich people. This poem that I wrote and is and published in the Indian country uh, co, co-edited collection between Prairie Fire and CV2, edited by Catherine Vermette and Warren Carew. This poem comes from four months of visiting a really powerful place in Wasanich country, and it's popularly known as Goldstream. And I was going there as my own uh, obligations to my clan, but also my commitment to wanting to learn about Wasanich peoples. I felt by going and visiting this place, I would be able to learn something about Wasanich peoples. Cease ceremony. Just like going over there with the others and dying. On salmon taking last sways amongst four dead piers at a gentle curve in the riverbank. Like recognizing dignity in death of piers, giving last cleansing rites, with last undulations of a tattered fin, swoosh, 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 a gentle cleansing with a curvy cedar bough on human learning from salmon. Even in your death, even in my dying, recognition, dignity, a ceremony, we are here in it, together. Salmon to salmon in the dark shade of a low-hanging cedar bough, ceaselessly moving waters. Eyes go first, fighting teeth last, on remains of the living and dead. One, giant singing trees with tiny white dots on eagles and decomposing salmon at Christmas are perched in the trees. Italian, because I don't know my mother's words to describe their song in Nishnabemuin. Italian, because I don't know Sanchothan words, the human language made from this place, their song. Two, American Dipper on a low jutting twig, dipping, dancing, and singing a song, dunks into brisk waters, emerges with a round, light pink egg, propping open its beak. We traditional dancer offer salmon song before feasting. Heron lands on flexible ribcage of a dead cedar lane supine on the riverbank. Slow, deep boing, slow, deep boing, slow, deep boing. 
This cedar ribcage echoes the salmon ribcage at my feet over here on this side of the river, on humans bouncing, bouncing, bouncing on the backs of all their relatives. Three, there are salmon and eagles, seagulls, dippers, herons, and crows, one local returning black bear. There is mist and rain, one snow, saturated blankets of moss burrowed deep down amidst mountains, one solstice, two moon cycles, three settler holidays. There is eagle shit and salmon pink flesh, fresh blood, the smell of rotting corpses, the color of long dead dry corn husks, big raindrops dripping into water circles and the swish swish of swiftly, suddenly swooshing dark fins in green pools. There are only ever solitary settler men, one German man and me, our cameras, and small talk about the salmon and eagles, the dippers and herons and avoiding large crowds, on being bear woman attending a sea ceremony in a provincial park in Wasana Chwake during early, early mornings on Saturdays. Well, uh, in our creation stories, there's a sense that the world begins with sound. That's John Barrows, the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Law at UVic. So, Buju Nadinawe Magani Dok, Nichi Nishnabeg Nichi Marzig, Giganos Nadijanakas, Neashiwanigimigan Donjaba Nagigan Dodem. And so the crashing together of seeds of energy and some space and time far distant from us produced a friction and that friction ended up uh, creating energy which expanded through time and space and that gets embedded in our work when we begin, uh, say, with a rattle. We are mimicking the sounds of that first life as they or kindled in a space in some other realm. And that sense of sound then gets transferred into when we pick up a drum as we begin our work, which is the wave of energy that crashes into the earth and gets embedded in the earth and that we then try to bring out with the sound of the drum, which is the dewe again, or the sound of the heart of the earth, as we talk about that in Anishinaabemwin. And so when the work of law is done, you use the rattles, you use the drums to, uh, I guess, point decision makers to the fact that we are making judgments in a relational way, that we're not the first initiators of sound, we are just in a long line of those that have participated in a transfer of energy, and that in this moment now, we need to harness those sounds harness that energy to make the best judgments that we can where we are right now. So Anishinaabe law is drawn from a holistic view of life and the world. And so you want to pay attention to not only what you think, but also what you feel. Judgment is the joining of the heart and the mind. And in order to be fully present in judgment, you need to account for what sounds in your ears and what 
you see through your eyes and the way that you are sensate with touch, etc. And so the uh, encouragement to be fully embodied when you make judgment is, I think, what distinguishes Anishinaabe law from the common law. Professor Barrow says common law is more focused on rationality and controlling the passions to prevent them from dictating decision-making. Our senses are the receptors of information that comes to us from one another and from the natural world, and we cut ourselves off from resources for reasoning if we're only focusing on the eyes and what we read. In a common law system, people have to use their ears to listen to testimony and eyes to read cases. But what happens in that setting is we're very human-centric, and we try to basically shut out the the smoke that might be in the pipe or the sound of the birds that might be in the trees or the water, the river, rivers uh, in their um, modulations, right? And so in Anishinaabe law, um, we want to expand beyond just what humans are focused on in the courts and realize that there are lots of things around us that are helping us to understand how to live well, with order, with patterns, and uh, and so yes, those sources of law are the birds and the insects and the plants and the rocks and the winds and the waves. Anishinaabe calls this akinomagewin. Akit is the earth. Anomage is to point towards and then take direction from. And so the literal notion here is that there's a methodology of law that sees the law being in the earth. That's the legal archive. That's the casebook. The professors are those little um, beings that fly around us and walk around us and that we watch uh, swim by. So the application of our senses allows us to be receptive to things that we might otherwise miss, to transcend what the common law system allows us to experience. But we want to tend to the legal personalities or agencies that um, are are just beyond humankind, I guess. And so, yeah, those sources of law then allow us to talk about law that maybe is sacred, law that comes from the environment, law that flows from deliberation, law that we can then proclaim or say is positivistic as we've tried to get a sense of what those other things mean, and we make rules about that, or sayings, or statements. Some of the law is customary, it's implied through our behavior. He shared a story with us about how the sense of taste led the Anishinaabe people to the law of proportionality. All maple trees just used to have sugar that poured out of them rather than the watery sap. And all of these Anishinaabe people were around the countryside just in the springtime with their mouths wide open, (laughs) lying under these trees, just, you know, swallowing the sap, gulp, 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 mouthful after mouthful after mouthful. And when Nana Bojo, our trickster figure, was walking through the territory, he just saw all these lazy Anishinaabe people and nothing else was being done. And uh, so the preparations for the next season weren't being made with the nets that need to be constructed and the boats that need to be repaired and the 
the wigwams or the houses that needed to be you know, up to standard for the coming rains. It was just all being left aside. Of course, that's not going to be healthy for a human community if another season comes along and you just don't have the wherewithal to live or feed yourself. And so Nana Bojo was disturbed with all these people just sitting there drinking, drinking, drinking all this sweet maple syrup. And so uh, he wondered what he could do, and he went and asked his his uh, his grandmother, Nokomis, uh, if uh, she had a suggestion. And she said, yeah, why don't you go and uh, pour water down like on all of these trees so you can start to dilute that sap. And so Nana Bojo said, well, that's a good idea because if these people have to work harder for it, they'll maybe appreciate it and they'll also set themselves to getting ready for the next season's activities. So Nana Bojo takes buckets of water and he climbs up trees and at the top of the trees, he pours the water down the trees trying to um, dilute the sugar, the maple sugar that's just flowing out of the trees. And uh, this is hard work, right? You can imagine going to the river, going to the tree, climbing up the tree, pouring the water, climbing down the tree, going to the river back and forth. And so as Nanabush is doing this, uh, he's taking once in a while great gulps of water himself because uh, he's getting uh, thirsty and worn out through this activity. And as he's doing that, um, it kind of feels like, oh, I've got to relieve myself. And so Nanabush is just full of all of this water. And uh, he starts to relieve himself. He starts to have a pee by this tree. And as he does that, uh, suddenly the maple sugar uh, goes diluted and turns into this watery type substance. And Nana Bojo starts to realize there's an easier way to go about changing uh, what's happening here. I'll just go to the river, have a drink, and then he just starts going to all these trees, having a pee <laughs> near them all. And uh, eventually the Anishinaabe kind of wake up and recognize, oh, these trees aren't as sweet anymore. We need to put more effort into it. And uh, so they kind of come out of the stupor or the mesmerized state that they're in, just receiving that taste of maple sugar without uh, any effort on their part. And, uh, and so they then are more proportionally balanced in their life because they have to work for the maple sugar to be turned to something that is a kind of a usable state. This story teaches us to challenge narrow-mindedness and instant gratification to see the bigger picture. So it's the taste that was keeping people kind of locked into just one way of being in the world. And then by having Nana Bojo change how the liquid comes out of the tree, Anishinaabe people learn about the law of proportionality and the danger that can come from uh, a single-minded focus. There's also a lesson to be learned about how we perceive time. Uh, when we're in our class, we sometimes talk about time being a living being. In Anishinaabemwin, uh, you mark the world by animacy and inanimacy. And when you mark time, you mark time as animate, meaning it has an agency, it has a, a life force, it's its own um, intervention in the world. And so if you think about time as being a living being, um, you want to, as you do with all your relations, treat that being 
with respect. Um, make sure that it is um, uh, given the accord, the dignity, the treatment that you would you know want yourself to be given. And so if you think about time in that way, if you treat time well, um, you know, just as when you're treating someone else well, you usually receive that wellness in return. If you're with someone and you're always rushing them and uh, ignoring them and trying to, you know, just get your own way with them, though that relationship's not going to be very good. And of course, of course, that's going to be the case with time, right? If you're trying to ignore time or crush time or rush time or not think about time, you're not going to have a good relationship with that being. And that's going to not only um, get in the way of uh, who you are with time, it's going to probably make you less well-rounded because you're going to lose out on the insight of a great wise teacher, um, that, that being of time. And from our orientation, we can learn to be open to new directions. There are seven directions. The east is where we start, Wabanung. It's the place of the dawn. Um, south is Jawanung. Um, west is Ningabinung, where the star Venus sinks into the water. The north is Giwedanung, which Giwedan is the go-home direction. Um, there's the, so those are the four cardinal directions, but they're joined by up Ishpeming, the heavens, what's beneath us, Dabashish, and then what's in the center of us, Nawai'i. So when we make judgment, um, we have to, law has a where, and the where is in context of those directionalities. And we want to be in balance with that and not, like those stories I've been telling you so far, just overemphasize kind of one way or one direction or one orientation to something, we need to be cross-referencing those directions. We need to be correlating those directions. We need to take guidance and understanding from looking around all of us and therefore not be missing an insight that, uh, you know, otherwise would be there if we cast ourselves to that. So it's, it's an encouragement to be open and to, again, not just get lost in your own moment, but take account of nuance. So we, we often say this in class, right? Nuance is sacred or beware the danger of a single story. This, this idea about directionality is to open up yourself to what might be coming from directions that uh, maybe are not your first orientation. And in Anishinaabe Moan, the phenomenons of the natural world and our perception of temperature can be models for how to heal relationships. There's all sorts of teachings that are attached to, say the word for warm and mild is abawa. Um, it's a time when, if you're in Ontario and things start to get warm and mild, there's a flow, there's a, a melting, there's a warming trend, there's a, a breaking up of the obstacles that are there between you. Um, that's that's abawa. And often there's a mist that rises along with that as the cold and warm air mixes together and you can't see very clearly. So that's warm and mild, Abawa. That's a temperature phenomena. Our word for forgiveness is Abawa Waindam. Aindam is what happens in your mind. So we're trying to take examples of what forgiveness might mean from this temperature phenomena. So what's forgiveness? It's a warming trend. It's a thawing. It's a it's a breaking up. It's a 
things uh, flowing much easier between us than they might have before. Um, but if you've been in Ontario, you know that the mists don't fully clear. Uh, the moment February comes along and you have that first thaw and melt, it takes a long season of heat and light uh, until you're you know, with those warm, clear, crystal, uh, you know, crystal clear days in the summertime. And uh, so temperature there, um, that warm and mildness uh, indicates that forgiveness might not come in an instant, that you might need a season of work with someone or experience with someone, time, like the lengthening of days and, and warmth between you for that darkness or that obstruction that was there between you to be able to clear and then part of it is if we were in a community, we would talk with one another about what your experience of pain is or itchiness or temperature or time. And I could learn from you because it's not just like I'm one authority and I'm an oracle and know everything because we're embodied with our with our law, knowledge and our law. You would share your insights with me and we could find other ways of trying to get to good behavior. This means that if we can be collaborative about our experiences, we can come to new truths. So the, the, the morpheme in Anishinaabemowin for wave is we. And I mentioned that morpheme already when I mentioned the word for the drum, o-de-we-agun. So o-de is the heart, we is the wave, agun is the instrument of. And so o-de-we-agun or de-we-agun is the instrument of the heart waves again, which we have in ourselves, which comes from a broader place, which is in the earth. So then you mentioned this notion of truth. Uh, it also has that morpheme in it, we. And the prefix for that is debwe. Debwe, debe means to measure. We is a unit of sound. So debwe is a measure of a unit of sound. So truth is a measure of a unit of sound. And the way my voice is sounding out is different than yours. I have different measures. I have different judgments. I have different experiences. So my my understanding of truth in Anishinaabemowin is what I've been able to measure, what I've been able to experience or understand in what I've encountered. And so that's truth. And then you have other experiences, other encounters that you then speak in a measured way of sound, deboy. So we both have um, our truths. Uh, uh, we both have the ability to identify you know, what we know, what we experience. And then, of course, as sound mingles together, there's a harmonics, right? And so you look for your wave and my wave and we try to find ways that they join effectively in order to produce patterns of order or resonance um, that's not a universal truth but in putting our truths together um, there's another kind of sound that emerges um, you think of playing keys on a piano right you put down three fingers and you get something else that's different than just playing the one key at a time and so that's what truth involves is both the individual measure and then the sense of how we can join those sounds or our understandings of our experiences with one another in a more um, correlated way and so then with those sounds we of course form our languages through morphemes and ways of understanding the um, world around us, and, uh, and, and then we're breathing, right? And so a lot of the ceremonies then are fire ceremonies or pipe ceremonies where 
there's this notion of inhaling and exhaling the breath, uh, which then you can see with the smoke that rises through the pipes, and you see the rising of that smoke uh, with the breath and uh, the intermingling that occurs in the space that people are found together when we're counseling with one another. And then we understand that we're exchanging breath because the pipe, as you pick it up, I can see it goes in and out and you can see it goes in and out of me and we can see that it's mingling in that space in the center. And then what that mimics for us is that we are literally sharing breath when we talk with one another. We're literally sharing that sound and that is the sharing of the sounds that came from those first moments of crashing of energy that crashed into the earth and became the heartbeat of our mother the earth which then come out through the drum which we then as we've prefaced our work in that way try to correlate our actions to one another and look for patterns of order that take place uh, across that uh, orientation Professor Barrow says that even the way the language is structured can become a lesson. Yeah, so, so Anishinaabemowin, like all other Algonquian languages, is uh, verb-based. So 80% of the language is uh, actions. And that is a direction to us to understand that when we are making decisions and relating to one another, that we need to be attentive to the fluidities of those actions and the dynamism that's found in those actions. And the act of speaking the language in an oral tradition can be a lesson in relationality. Because you're going to forget, I'm going to forget, and we need to rekindle, revisit, uh, um, deepen, uh, strengthen our relationship to one another. Right. So the oral tradition encourages relationality because we have to be in proximity to one another to hear and do this work. And then it also encourages a relationship to what we're hearing uh, by impressing on us in a kind of layered way the import of that. Alrighty. Val Napoleon is the Law Foundation Chair of Aboriginal Justice and Governance at UVic and the Director of the Indigenous Law Degree Program in the Indigenous Law Research Unit. Val Napoleon is my name. My other name is Gun. It's a Gixan name. I've been adopted into the Gixan. Um, I'm from northeast British Columbia, from Soto First Nation. Learning the law, she says, begins when we are very young, when new knowledge is being absorbed constantly through all of our senses. Children learn about the world through stories, through art, through play, uh, through interactions with adults. They're learning with all of their senses about how the world works. Law is a piece of how the world works. So then we get to be adults and we forget that the way that we've learned included all of our senses and we focus on the intellectual. And contrary to some narratives, Indigenous law relies on both the senses and the intellect. Sometimes the way that Indigenous law, for instance, is talked about is only as if it's um, uh, emotional or spiritual or uh, relying entirely on the senses with less emphasis on the intellect. 
and and sometimes there's a pushback totally to the idea that indigenous peoples have an intellect and so what i would advocate is that we understand that legal reasoning is an intellectual process that law itself is an intellectual process but it's informed by all of who we are so that what happens when we talk about indigenous law is that it's not um it's not robbed of the historic intellectual resources that can be brought to bear to solve problems, that it's not robbed of the necessity for people to think together, to think critically together about their world and about the problems that they're experiencing, about aspects like accountability and um, fairness and all the other kinds of things that we believe need to be a part of law. I've often wondered if sometimes when people are looking at Indigenous people and looking at Indigenous law, whether they just want our heart and our spirit and not our minds. We were historically intellectual beings uh, as we are today. To survive in the world and to survive colonization, um, there's been a emphasis on healing and spirituality, I think to the detriment of our intellectual, um, our intellectuality our, and the public intellectuality that is a necessary part of being a, a healthy society. So I would advocate um, a comprehensive approach that uh, appreciates uh, the, the fullness of all of who we are without undermining uh, any one part of us. Professor Napoleon uses art to conceptualize the understanding of law in a different way. So I paint these pictures of ravens, and they all wear little kerchiefs, most of them. Some of them wear headbands. Um, and they, they create spaces for conversations about who are tricksters about how can law be represented. The ravens are all female and embody the trickster, which she says were the first teachers of law. And I started it because so many of the ways that people talked about the trickster for indigenous peoples was as a male, as they gendered the trickster. And I'm not convinced that historically the trickster was gendered in that way, but what it did was it erased the potentiality for women uh, to be tricksters or females to be tricksters, and and I think that that's uh, problematic. Whoever these female tricksters are is that they're informed by historic and present day uh, resurgence of indigenous feminism, that they embody the possibility for women, all women, um, as direct and active and smart. Uh, beings who engage in the world and in the law that they are a part of. The paintings depict a raven in a scene that's meant to facilitate questions and conversations about law in society. And so, for instance, so one of the uh, paintings is a little girl trickster, and she's in a city and she's by herself. And it's an image that we've used with kids to ask about law. And so we can ask, why is she by herself? Do you think she's afraid? Does anybody, should anybody be looking after her? Um, what should she 
be able to expect from other people. So we can have a conversation about her vulnerability, about where she is, and about the absence of people around her in a way that gets at legal obligations and kinship and other kinds of things. And so all of the different images um, offer that as as ways to create spaces for conversations. So you can take up these images that are non-text, that allow uh, potential conversations of great depth and scope. It's another way to engage uh, people in talking about law that's part of their world. Um, yeah, so that's, that's part of why I paint the tricksters. The paintings offer us another way to engage different aspects of ourselves through law. So they have many ways of teaching us, right? They can slap us up the head when we take ourselves too seriously and so on. Um, there are different series uh, of paintings. So one of the series is called Old Indigenous Feminist Trickster Does uh, Peculiar Research in the Colonizer's Garden. And so these series include tricksters who are in Monet's garden and in the gardens of other European artists. So they're painted into those scenes. And so, you know, hopefully it'll raise some questions about that. Uh, there's another series, which is about, which is lovers, which is about diversity, but also includes things like fighting, because fighting is something you do when you're intimate with someone. It's a, it's the kind of fighting that lovers do, that partners do, is different from the kind of disagreements and so on with others. It's, it's the fact of the intimacy that enables that kind of fighting, so the fighting can be understood as part of that relationship. And Professor Napoleon says sometimes it's easier to use characters to present complicated issues and ask difficult questions. I mean, that's why theater is important and music and all of the other ways that we represent our ideas about the world or we find ways to disagree and so on, is that it can be easier if we can imagine the issues and the characters outside ourselves and then see what happens with the conversation and what's, what's taken up. more of our senses to look at a complex issue and use legal reasoning, we can use both our intellect and our heart, as Professor Napoleon said, which is something we also spoke with our next guest about. At its best, I think what it is, is a reminder that we are whole people and kind of the intellectual processes um, are important things for helping us find spaces of objectivity for decision making. That was Rebecca Johnson the Associate Director of the Indigenous Law Research Unit. And uh, I've been now living in this amazing uh, Salish territories for 17 years, uh, originally from uh, Treaty 7 territory, born in Calgary, and wandered my way around the world, sensing uh, things in all sorts of different locations before settling down here to think about law, legality, and the way law binds us together as people. Intellectual processes are integral to lawmaking, but have to work together with our senses. This is a challenge for many people as they experience the law, as it feels like sometimes when you're encountering it that you're required to put parts of yourself to the side and only think with certain parts. So 
I don't, far be it from me to take down the importance of um, intellectual uh, processes, but part of the question is how to see those as in relationship with other ways of knowing and processing. Sometimes the relationship between intellect and the senses can get messy when dealing with law, and it's easy to pass judgment when you are not personally connected to something. She shared a story to help illustrate the relationship between our senses or emotions and intellectual work. So I was teaching a class on um, feminist legal theory back in New Brunswick uh, many years back, and we were reading a lot of cases dealing with hard criminal law problems around sexual assault. And so we had a lot of readings, and we were doing this work of kind of intellectually pulling apart cases and what judges had said and doing all these working, trying to really understand how it was that our society came to be saturated with both sexual violence and um, stories of sexual violence around us all the time. So this hard intellectual work. But what would always, always happen when we were doing this hard intellectual work is people would bring their whole selves to the story. So someone invariably in the class would tell a story of um, an encounter of sexual violence that had happened either to them or within their family. And it would it would profoundly change the nature of the discussion. So you can't play with the ideas when you have a real person in front of you. But when you have a real person in front of you, you also have a profoundly different sense of why this matters, how it matters, and how law is kind of all m- stuck together. So two things were happening. We were trying to do the intellectual work, but it felt distant until people put the personal in, and then it was too close. And you could also then not think in the same way because you were too proximate to a person for whom you had care. So it wasn't that you would choose one or the other, but it really felt in that context like you need a way to think with each other that doesn't require people to kind of personally vomit themselves up with all of their fragility in front of a group, but you also can't do it by just staying in this realm of intellectual disconnection. So the question that I started thinking about then was the one you're asking, which is how do we think about drawing the senses into the ways we learn that help us find a middle path kind of between um, overly personalizing and over resting too hard in very painful places of emotion or resting too long in places of um, intellectual uh, kind of play at the micro level, both of which feel distant from how we live our lives. So that was the question, right? She wanted to find a way that this tension could be relieved by allowing personal insights into intellectual discussions about law without letting them get in the way of the process. One strategy she suggested is by using what she calls sensorial Sensorial texts. I'll call them that. So film, for example, or artwork as a way of finding a place where people could uh, start to access thinking through the senses, but not attached to real people. So not on the bodies of the real, but on the bodies of texts that are designed to be sensorially rich and to... Um, tweak our imagination. All you have to do is think about going to the horror movies or watching them at home and turning down the volume and it changes your experience. The the way that sound penetrates our body, it's a real physical object, sound. If you think of 
how we come to learn and come to existence through the heartbeat within the womb, all the sloshing sounds of, you know, the intestinal tracts that nurture us into uh, existence as beings. All of that stuff we learn through sound. We learn through what we see. We learn through what we hear. Uh, we learn through the tactile. And when you uh, make it possible to talk about ideas with that sort of sensorial landscape in front of you, I think it's easier for people to be able to access the the importance of thinking about what you see, not just trusting that because you felt it, it's real. So if a piece of art, or in Professor Johnson's example, a movie, makes you feel emotional, even though it's not reality, that doesn't quite mean you're solving problems with a sensorial text. So the sensorium, this world of the imagination, of trying to build relations to a place that you're not, I think is a really powerful way to help do some of that work of disrupting. And it doesn't happen by just, like, it doesn't happen by just going to a movie. This is, I want to pull back in the intellectual. So I can go to a movie, um, you know, Spike Lee's new Black Klansman movie. So you can go to the movie and you can see about some stuff of the past, but it's not enough to see on its own. That doesn't do the work. Doing the work is about connecting with people and your experience of that sensorial text and reflecting on those feelings. Part of the work of that is the discussion with people around the jumps in the movie, around the gaps, around the felt experience, turning the lens back on oneself to ask why one felt the, one, the way one felt, to interrogate how it might be if you were to change that sort of set of feelings, like the, the intellectual processes are a crucial part of who we are. It's just that when they can be drawn into conversation with our, these other imaginative capacities, I think we up, uh, kind of up the ante on our capacity to do those things in ways that leave us kind of feeling richer, more connected to ourselves, more connected to the world around us, less disempowered, more hopeful, more realistic, um, more gentle with each other, you know, that's, that's the hope, yeah, the hope. Like the way that Professor Napoleon uses her paintings of the ravens to ask challenging questions through a character, the idea of a sensorial text can help us bring out our emotional selves into an issue without clouding the intellectual process. Professor Johnson uses clay to work through these issues. My own practice has been increasingly to think about how to incorporate many of the lessons I've been learning uh, from Indigenous colleagues and Indigenous community members about other ways of thinking through law. And so the clay has been one place for me to think about how to put into practice ideas that I'm um, learning or being exposed to in other ways that are uh, also multisensorial. And this practice brings a physicality to theorizing the law. That law, helping me kind of disrupt the notion that law is only the texts we write and that law isn't also the practices we engage in. So that working with the earth does help a person learn things about laws of relationship, laws of time, laws of tenderness, laws of care, uh, laws of letting go. Right, But I think those kinds of um, questions about law that I've been thinking about with Clay are questions of law that people can think about in their own practices. And Professor Johnson says that there is an important connection between artists and lawmakers. 
in many indigenous communities that historically um, the people that we would think of as lawmakers were often the people that we would think of as artists. So artists and law people where the functions were often overlapped in some ways. So when there was a very difficult problem to be sorted out, you would bring in the artistic people. So the storytellers, the visual artists, the carvers, the singers, the dancers, who would produce works or engage with people in works that would allow space and time for the working through of the problems. When you think about problem solving and law, many of the things that people think of as objects or artifacts of indigenous law, of, of indigenous communities are legal objects. And many of them have this tactile nature to them. So the songs are heard, the dances are danced with the bodies, the um, poles are raised, they're carved with the hands, the, the baskets are woven. So there's so much in these practices of art law that is very much um, drawing the bodies of people into engagement with the objects. These objects or sensorial texts draw on senses you might not often consider to be affiliated with law, such as touch. We touch not only with our hands, we touch with our eyes, we touch with our ears, we touch with, with our senses, we touch with our, with our tongue. I only have to say usually the word like lemon to someone and usually the, the mouth starts salivating. Like there's ways that, that these senses draw things up for us. So usually we only think about law's touch in the form of uh, handcuffs or prison doors or the gavel, like the, the ways that um, for Western legally trained people, the touch of law is usually the touch of coercion or constraint. What might it be if we thought in more imaginative ways about our own legal traditions to think about law as exceeding not being exhausted by the punitive touch, but by um, what laws might be if we think about what it means to build communities that are safe. And I use safe in the word of where people know who each other are, where people's differences are seen, acknowledged, identified, where space is made for difference, where connections are made possible, where people become part of a community. But the concept of touching uh, being touched by law, touching law, was a very uh, uh, kind of powerful experience to be in that partnership and to have those questions opened up. And incorporating this idea of touch in other senses at our disposal allows us to build a new relationship with the system we have and to gain a more comprehensive understanding of that. And to think about how to take that up in ways that say, what can you use where you are? Not, not a rejection of everything one inherits or has inherited, but an encouragement to a different kind of imagination around how those connections work, how to see within um, one's own tradition that the forms of glue, that the touches, the connections that suture you know, everything together in order to um, create in us the capacities to do the hard work that is the work of living, right? which is the work of law. There's similar ways of thinking about how our engagements with the body and with the world can help us learn. I think it's true for people who are singers or musicians or who play with music or who, uh, you know, cartoon draw or who 
um, you know, spend time in nature or who work with plants. I think um, acknowledging the ways that each of us differently has connections to the real but of different forms is a way of taking seriously that we can learn law and learn to be lawful in some sense, not only within the boundaries of a university's educational system, but in the ways that we live our lives, in the relationships we build with people, in the ways that we are alert to our sensorium. Professor Johnson brought up a question posed by Dr. Kyle White about the time of transformation and the importance of slowing down and extending our experience of time to focus more on rebuilding and rest rather than tearing apart our systems and starting from scratch. So I found myself thinking a lot about how easy it is for us to break things and about how much time it is to build and about um, having more attention ourselves. And this is a legal question, right? How much time does it take us to build systems within our society? Kinship, if we're thinking about that as how we relate to each other. Challenging how law is defined and how it serves us begins with challenging ourselves. But it would be, I think, I don't know, how can law do it? I guess the question is, how will I do it? How will you do it? How will the people listening do it? Maybe the question is, I like the question, maybe the question is one that we need to be individually asking ourselves, not searching for law to fix it for us, right? How do we take those questions up as we understand ourselves as always already being legal actors in any place that we're at? Just a thought. This episode of Play on Words was produced by Katie Denslow, with help from Cody O'Neill, Navat Cower, Andrea Vogel, Alba Clevinger, and me, Diana Draker. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. Play on Words is made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada in the BC Gaming Society. If you like what you heard, tune in next week and subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, give me your ear. Let's uh, let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. Hi, my name is Yukari Peerless, and it's been a pleasure helping out with the production of the CFUB podcast. I love podcasts, and I listen to a lot of podcasts, and so it was uh, such a fun experience for me to help out making our own podcasts and stories for CFUB. The interesting thing, the most interesting episode for me was the episode about the Chinatown, because I because I go there all the time and I know the people there, but I don't really know exactly how it started. As a person of color, it was really interesting to learn how those people came to Victoria and hear the story from uh, Charlene Thornton Jones. She's a great friend of mine. Also, uh, John Adams, uh, everybody knows him. He is a great historian of Victoria. And yeah, it was such an honor for me to talk to those people and they hear their stories. Um, yeah, it was a really interesting um, experience. And I hope you enjoyed these episodes and hope you tune in next year as well. Maybe you can come and help us make podcasts as well. Happy listening.
If you're enjoying this episode of Play on Words, you'll love Taking Up Space's episode on the gendered aspects of the Indian Act and how the implications are still being experienced today. Check out this episode called Gender Disparity in the Indian Act.